This is Inside the New South Wales Police Force. Real cops, real stories. I'm your host, Adam Shan. This week, the strange story of Samantha as a party, the con artist who impersonates children and how New South Wales Police brought her to justice. Samantha as a party also in many respects was a changeling. She had the ability to change her social status from being a homeless, sexually abused wife and then to transform herself into the daughter of a multimillionaire. And at the New South Wales Police Academy, we talk inclusion and a feeling of home with the First Nations students' support team. So I can articulate why that's important to me as an Aboriginal person and having my identity attached to my sense of home. But for our students, what does home look like for you? This podcast is sponsored by Police Bank. No matter where you are on your financial journey, banking with Police Bank means banking where you belong. Whether it's growing your savings, entering the workforce, buying your next home, or simply enjoying what life has to offer. Police Bank has a range of products to suit you at any stage of life. Samantha as a party is an internationally known fraudster and con artist. In November 2022, in a Sydney court, the 33-year-old was convicted of her 100th offence. This time, she posed as a 14-year-old French national, the victim of a sex cult. It was a complete and elaborate fantasy. Over the years, Azapati has consistently claimed to be a teenage girl who suffered all manner of neglect and abuse. She's had many, many names and different nationalities. In 2015, Detective Sergeant Aaron Power investigated Azapati, or Harper Hart, as he first knew her. And Aaron is our guest today. Good morning, Aaron. Oh, good morning. Thanks for your time today. You've called her a changeling. Why do you call her that? Uh, this is a term that um, has been used by law enforcement professionals for a very long period of time. People said that the infamous Charles Manson was a changeling, where he had the ability to change his appearance from day to day. Samantha as a party also in many respects was a changeling. She had the ability to change her social status from being a homeless, sexually abused wife one minute and then to transform herself into the daughter of a multimillionaire. Uh, going to a well, the world's most prestigious school in Europe. She had the ability to change her appearance, to use various props, to manufacture false identity documents. And so she could change her corporate identity, her physical identity and her personality traits from day to day. Um, I would say Samantha, as a party, would be one of the most intelligent offenders we've come across. Well, not being a, uh, an expert in psychological profiles, I find it very difficult to come to an overarching rationale for her offences. Concerns we had was that she might be running for a larger organised crime group who basically have been financing her and maybe in some, some capacity she's doing their bidding for them as a paid agent. That was always intimated, but it was never proven. 2015, you first hear of Harper Hart. How did that happen? That occurred when we were contacted by the Department of Family and Community Services at Burwood where they had concern over a young girl which was attending a school for students with special needs at uh, Marrickville called the, uh, the Good Shepherd School. This girl apparently had been found on the street by a charitable couple. She'd given the name Harper Hart. This couple, who were a childless couple, out of the goodness of their own heart, had brought her in and uh, supported her. She then attended to the Good Shepherd School, which was a school for children with special needs. She appeared to be a person who was functionally illiterate, and she put out stories that she had been sexually abused. She was on a United States witness protection program, uh, that she'd been raped by a member of the New South Wales police, and there were various other stories too. Now, from the teachers, the Department of um, Community Services heard about these concerns, and they, they were... They've, considered her to be a child at risk on the basis that she's living with a couple who she's not related to. She's a person who's only allegedly 13 or 14 years of age. And yet she was 26 at this time. That's correct. How did she look physically? I mean, 26 and 13, it's a pretty good effort to pull that off. When you saw her, what did she look like? Well, what occurred is I sent my field intelligence officer out to get photographs of her, surreptitious photographs. And she was wearing a, a little print T-shirt and short pants and uh, she had freckles under her eyes. 
dressed very much like a 13-year-old girl. When you peruse these photographs, you would believe that she's 13 or 14 years of age. That wasn't really our concern. The concern of, of docs was the fact that you have a girl who's 13 or 14. She's living with a couple who haven't been vetted in any way. Upon that basis, the Department of Community Services brought her and the parents in to be interviewed. It was very unusual because when she came in, she noticed that there was a closed-circuit camera and so she uh, sat in a position which ensured that the camera would not pick up her face. At the same time, she told the Department of Community Services and her parents also that under no circumstances would she be permitted to be photographed. And this could have been something which goes along with the story that she was in a United States Witness Protection Program and that the publication of her photograph could be deleterious to her safety. She was looked upon as being a victim and the Department of Community Services were rightfully concerned that uh, perhaps she's a victim of a pedophile ring, perhaps she's a victim of spousal child abduction, perhaps it's a situation where she's being held against her will by this allegedly charitable family, uh, perhaps she's suffering from mental illness. So all of these uh, situations and concerns were raised and because there was an intimation that she was a child at risk, the social workers contacted the police to try to verify and blow out some of these concerns. At that stage, uh, it was starting to become a police matter. Look, one of the things we were provided for is Harper Hart was told by the school, look, we can't have you in the school without some sort of identification. So uh, we really need a birth certificate from you. Now, she then went off sick and reappeared at the school some time later with two things. First of all, a birth certificate from the American state of California, and secondly, a, a medical certificate from a Sydney hospital. That gave us some documents to work with. Since we weren't getting any information from Harper Hart herself, and since, surprisingly, her foster parents wouldn't cooperate with us either, we were in a position where we could at least check those documents out. Uh, I made inquiries with the hospital where the certificate originated from and they came back with some interesting things. First of all, that doctor who signed the certificate didn't work at the hospital. Secondly, that doctor was not known to any medical register in Australia. And thirdly, the graphics on the medical certificate were all forged. In regards to the birth certificate from the state of California, the birth certificate recorded her birth as being a home birth. Very few people today are born at home. So that was rather suspicious. Secondly, it showed her allegedly newly introduced foster mother and father as being her birth parents. But they were Australians who apparently have never visited the United States before. So how are they listed as being parents of birth when they're Australians who've never been to California? So this is ringing all kinds of alarm bells, but there's still no offence that you can look at and point to. And so this leaves you in a very unusual position. You're making what you've called a backwards investigation. What is that? Well, in most uh, investigations, you start off with a crime. And then from the crime, you use your police powers to investigate who a potential suspect was. In this regard, you're in a position where you have no crime. And you're basically trying to use your investigative powers to find out what the crime actually is. And one of the first things you had to establish was her identity. So you put your field surveillance team onto her to try to get photographs, which you could then... What was the purpose of getting those photographs? Well, the FBI asked for some assistance in identifying as to whether or not she's a United States citizen, and they asked for some photographs from her to use image identification technology. We actually took some surveillance photographs of her when she met in public with her social worker, but these photographs weren't of great enough pixelisation so we went and uh, had a, a second run in that regard and we got some photographs which were far closer and far more accurate. These photographs were provided to the FBI but they got no, no find on her. You're at a dead end with the FBI. What happened next? Now at this stage we were told that Harper Hart was functionally illiterate and the investigation stalled. There seemed to be no other avenues to go. We were in a position where we were aware that this foster family had a sister that was a resident in California and so we thought maybe the child was brought into Australia from California by this sister. Uh, maybe the sister is involved in spousal child abduction or something along that line. So we gave that information to the FBI and they fronted the sister. It seemed like we had nowhere to go. We're in a situation where Harper Hart would not cooperate with us. 
the foster parents uh, would not cooperate with us. They seemed to be people who were ostensibly of good reputation. And I think they actually believe that Harper Hart was in a United States witness protection program, that possibly she had been sexually assaulted by members of the New South Wales police, and they felt duty-bound and morally bound to protect her and not cooperate with police. At that period of time, we knew that once again, after many times of trying to obtain the cooperation of the foster parents and trying to communicate with Harper Hart, we found that our leads had basically come to nothing. However, there was no doubt that there's something was amiss in many respects. It took your colleague doing a fairly, I guess what listeners might think is a sort of a pretty normal thing for non-police, went to Google. What did Google yield and, and who was your colleague that handled that? Well, we didn't initially go to Google because we had nothing to type in there. I mean, obviously we typed in Harper Hart and nothing came up. What happened is my colleague was, by an off chance, he was in the constable's room at Burwood Police Station and he spoke to a uniform colleague of his and he told him about the, the case the detectives were dealing with. And this colleague said it reminded him of some case he heard of a number of years ago of an Australian girl in Ireland and Canada who put herself off as being the victim of childhood sexual assault, being a 13 or 14-year-old young girl that had been um, part of some sort of pan-European pedophile ring, but in actual reality was a, a 25 or 26-year-old Australian national. And uh, the girl was known in Ireland as the GPO girl. It was a cause celebre in Ireland at the time. And he felt that the case was kind of similar. Now, my colleague told me about this case, relayed by his friend in the uniform section. We Googled the name of this suspect. Now, the suspect was, her real identity was revealed. She was a girl by the name of Samantha as a party from the Campbelltown region found in the southwest of Sydney. And lo and behold, Google did raise the arrest of Samantha as a party in both Ireland and in Canada. And the photographs were fairly amorphous in, in many respects. In some ways, it did look a bit like the student at the Good Shepherd School at Marrickville that called herself Harper Hart, but in other ways, it looked like a different person. Once again, you've got the concept of the changeling coming in. And we weren't really sure if it was or was not her. Let's just focus on the GPO girl story. Quick background on, on what that story was and where she was found. In Ireland, a number of years before, there was a girl found wandering semi-incoherently around Dublin and she was located outside the main post office in Dublin. And the local Garda or the local Irish police were summoned and they took her to hospital and she seemed to be uh, illiterate and would not communicate with them. Upon that basis, because she was found outside the GPO at Ireland, the, the press called her the GPO girl. But she drew diagrams which seemed to intimate that she had arrived in Ireland from somewhere in Europe and she was possibly part of a child pedophile ring, possibly run by gangsters or some sort of organised crime from Eastern Europe. Now, the Irish Garda carried out an investigation which was called Strike Force Shepherd, where they went through virtually every CCTV they could find in Dublin and carried out inquiries that I think the, the cost of it was over, over 600000 Australian dollars. And yet still, they couldn't identify who she was. Once again, she wasn't communicating in writing or in speech, but only in vague diagrams. Finally, they decided what they needed to do was turn to some community policing and obtain the assistance of the community, hopefully in the event that someone might identify her. So they wanted to publish a photograph, but apparently under Irish law, because she's a minor, you can't do it without a court consent. So an application to the um, Supreme Court in Ireland was made out, and that was granted. Upon that basis, a photograph was published in Ireland, and an Australian gentleman by the name of Brennan, uh, who lived, I think it was southwest of Dublin, actually recognised her as being a young girl from Sydney by the name of Samantha Razapati, who was the daughter of his ex-partner. She had come to Ireland to visit him and to do the tourist thing. And so therefore he then identified uh, who she was and informed the Garda. It turns out that the 13 or 14-year-old girl was 26-year-old Samantha Azapati. Rather than charging her, the Irish Garda had her deported back to Sydney. After this, uh, a young girl popped up at a medical clinic, I think it was in Calgary, Canada, and I think she gave the name Aura Hepburn. 
Now, she was intimating that she was, um, her and her sister Daisy, were victims of a, what might be called a pedophile colony, known as the colony. The intimation was she had been sexually abused. Apparently prior to that, her sister Daisy had reported Aura as being a missing person. The police were summoned, interviewed numerous times. Uh, She was given medical care. Once again, the Canadian police or the Royal Canadian Mounted Police were concerned whether or not they had a colony of pedophiles roaming the country like a group of gypsies, how many other children were involved, how many other children were possibly imprisoned by these people. seemed to be a case of great concern. It was a case that Aurora had been reported missing by her sister and the question was, was, is her sister still a prisoner of these people? But then finally they were notified by the Irish police of the existence of a person by the name of Samantha as a party. And sure enough, the photographs and I think the fingerprints matched. And so the question is, who was Daisy? And it turns out that, that Daisy was actually Samantha as a party herself, where prior to initiating the ruse, she'd called up the police and actually reported herself missing under a different name, different identity. And so when Daisy did turn up with the police, they already had a file name on her as being a missing person. So she had done her backstory and created a, a police file on her before she pulled the ruse. Uh, she was charged uh, with various offences in Canada, but because she was already in custody, she was sentenced to time served and once again deported back to Australia, where yet again she disappeared. So once all these facts are known, everything changes dramatically. There's a decision to arrest her or are I missing a step there? Yes, you're missing a step because once again we're in a position where we don't have a real identification as to who Harper Hart is. By this stage we had knowledge as to who she was, her fingerprints were on file, but the question has to be that do we have enough to arrest her at this stage? And the question was, well, we don't. So there needed to be an identification. Now, on that basis, I knew that she was doing homework because she was illiterate, allegedly illiterate. Uh, so I went down there and the police contacted school officials and offered to mark her homework for her, that is, with the fingerprint and ink. And sure enough, her fingerprints came back and the fingerprints were that of Samantha as a party. At that stage, we knew that Samantha as a party was the one handing in this homework. And so then we had our match. It was a bit of a, a difficult thing for the, the young teacher that was actually, for the past year, had been trying to teach Harper Hart how to read and write, believing her to be functionally illiterate, yet all along she was totally literate, totally articulate. So for a period of one year, he was teaching literate person how to read and write. I don't know what the psychological effect was upon him, but... Sure, and there are a few motives in the crime world. There's financial profit, there's love or lust, and there's revenge. You, you don't even really have an offence at this stage, but you're starting to get some inklings about a possible pattern of here of making police look foolish, making teachers and other people look foolish. Did that start to cross your mind, that possible motive, revenge, about her personal circumstances and her upbringing, and this was a, this was a way that she was pushing back against that? Look, I know that Samantha came from trying social circumstances, from Campbelltown in southwest Sydney. She wasn't from an affluent family, and... It could be that she aspired to something greater. And it could be, in many respects, that maybe she got some satisfaction out of fooling people who were of a class which was considered to be much higher than hers. There's also a great amount of satisfaction sometimes in dominating and overpowering a person by fooling them, by dominating their psychic powers. Uh, At that point, it was up to us to, to move rather rapidly because we're in a position where you had a child who was 26 or 27 years of age who was actually living with other young children and she had no working with children check. So that made it a high risk situation. And so therefore we initially put together a, a crew of detectives. We went over there and uh, upon arrangement we arrested her when she came home. First of all, when we arrested her, she didn't seem surprised to see us. But immediately she went silent. She didn't uh, resist police at all. She was conveyed to Chatswood Police Station, which was the nearest police station. Upon entering the charge room, she did the same thing which she did when she was interviewed by docs. She went into a corner, she put the hoodie over her head, uh, put her hands over her face like a boxer on the ropes trying to protect himself because she was aware that she was being filmed by the closed-circuit television cameras in the charge room. 
She was trying to be not identified. We were coming up to the point where the charge sergeant was going to carry out fingerprinting and photographing of her. And when it came to the photographing, the charge sergeant asked her if she'd like a meal and she said she did. She was then provided with a meal and upon consuming one bite of the meal, she went into an alleged allergic reaction where this meal had apparently created a reaction with her body where she was having problems breathing. Upon that basis, the duty officer made the decision that she should be conveyed to hospital. It was our opinion at the time that it possibly it was a ruse to prevent her from being photographed by the child sergeant. And in this case, at that time, she was successful. She was then conveyed to Royal North Shore Hospital, where she was admitted for a period of time. Then after she was released, she was conveyed back to Chesswood Police Station. So this was once again her allergy coming to the forefront. And it was my experience that some offenders and, and other people can use physical impairments to control the crime environment. I used to do that myself as an undercover operative. You might be walking along through an area and you've got surveillance police following you and you want to slow a situation down so you find that you've got a sore leg and you can't walk quickly. In the end, it turned out that she had taken items of pecuniary value from the Department of Community Services. She had taken, uh, I think, a computer and other things. So she was charged with obtaining a benefit by deception and based upon various factors, uh, lack of contacts, uh, fraudulent documents, uh, untruths about her identity and, and her contacts in the community, she was bail refused at that time. And I would like to say also, unfortunately, the real victims, which didn't have a monetary value, is many of the social workers and teachers at Good Shepherd School. In fact, the chief case officer for Harper Hart upon the arrest phase broke down in tears and had a breakdown because for the past year, all of her good work was actually a fabrication. So these people were the real victims. And you also discovered that she was running multiple identities at the same time because some of the earlier ones or contemporaneous ones were actually providing material for other ruses and scams. I've often described Samantha as a party's enterprises as being overlaid spiderwebs. If you imagine a number of spiderwebs that overlay each other, she will often use a victim in one ruse as a player to prop up bona fides in another ruse. In many respects, she will tie victims and witnesses into other offences she's running and use them as props, human props. For instance, the medical certificate that she obtained from the hospital was part of another scam. Well, what we did is we, we did a, a call charge record on her phone and we came up with a, a call number who had actually called Good Shepherd School and actually take the part of a doctor who was telling the principal of Good Shepherd School that an examination of Harper Hart had been done, had been completed, uh, an X-ray examination of her skeletal features and that in fact she was in fact a 13-year-old girl. We did a call charge record upon that phone call and it went to a backpacker by the name of Lucy. We called her in the investigation French Lucy. And so we identified her, and she was a backpacker from, uh, from France. Uh, she was in the Bondi area. She stated that she'd come across a girl called Layla on a, uh, a Facebook page called the Bondi Loop, and she'd met Layla a number of times, and Layla was apparently a psychologist working at the St Vincent's Hospital. And Layla told her that she was playing a joke on someone and could she call up this person and, and say that she's a doctor and there's been an examination done on the patient by the name of Harper Hart. The result of the examination is that, yes, in fact, she is a 13-year-old girl. And it turns out, so this French Lucy backpacker was playing the part of a, a medical specialist and all the time she was actually talking to the principal of Good Shepherd School. And the principal of Good Shepherd School that thought that she was talking to a medical specialist. So she was using the victim in one case to prop up her story in yet another scam. And then later on, there was a situation where she wanted to do another joke. She wanted Lucy to call up stating that she was a clerk working for the United States Supreme Court. She was playing a joke on her brother. She wanted her brother to come home for a surprise party and that she should tell her brother that, yes, the documents relating to Harper Hart should continue as planned. And the idea was the brother would rush home to get the documents and then the surprise party would occur. Well, Lucy did that, and there was a script provided by Layla, a.k.a. Samantha as a party, for this purpose. And the brother seemed to, to understand and have no problem with it. Who was she actually talking to? She was probably talking to the Voster family. 
acting that she was a clerk for the United States Supreme Court, that they're doing a valuable service in protecting the identity of this individual who's under a United States Witness Protection Program and that they should continue to do so. And so she was using French Lucy to prop up her cover story with the Foster family she was actually living with at that time. And then later on, French Lucy kept trying to meet with her. Then finally she just cut her off and started to distance herself. So she'll use a person who she knows in one scam to prop up a story in yet another scam. Right, so she gets a custodial sentence after all this. What happened is she she pled guilty and she received a custodial sentence of one year imprisonment and then she appealed. And she's come out of jail and she's gone straight back to it. Even as late as November 2022, she was convicted of another similar offence, posing as a 14-year-old girl who had been sexually abused and so on and so forth. So do you think jail was the right place for Samantha as a party? What, in your opinion, is her mental state? Oh, look, I'm not, I'm not really in a position to... I don't have the qualifications to come to that determination. But one thing, the only thing I have to say is that makes me very suspicious is how intelligent she is and how well-planned she is. She's very lucid, very well-planned. She's a method actor. She researches her part. She, she seems to get her facts right in many respects. And she seems to be very active. As I said, her, her enterprises are a spider web on top of another spider web. Very complex. And I think I've spoken to you about this, and I, many, many people have said it. If she used her intelligence, her adaptability, her memory, her ability to, with detail for a lawful purpose, I think she'd be tomorrow's millionaire. Quite simply, she's very talented. And it's a great shame she hasn't used it for something which is more legitimate and is more constructive for society. Because the offences and the acts that you investigated were just the sort of tip of the iceberg. There were many more, many other deceptions that you didn't pursue that wasn't going to avail. You already spent hundreds, if not thousands, of hours on this investigation. How active was she, in your opinion? There's a, there's a, a number of cases which have since come to light. Uh, in some involving stealing children, quote-unquote, with the Victorian police. I think it was at Ballarat. Other ones with a professional basketball player in Western Australia. There was the one with the California girl, Emily Bamberger. There's, there's been a number of major cases which have come to light in states all over Australia, but also overseas as well. Often in our investigation, we, we've come across names and places and bank accounts where we didn't have the resources or any other further avenues of inquiry. And I often stated I could get a, a team of 10 detectives investigate her for one year and still not get to the bottom of what's happening. She's free now, again, after being released on appeal. So I guess the real result of this investigation was to identify her. So in the future, if she is picked up elsewhere in Australia or overseas, the identification process can be a lot quicker. Was that one of your aims? Look, at the time, I was a bit surprised about the way that in modern society, with fingerprints, DNA and photographs, she was able to flit from Ireland to Canada to Australia and then from one Australian state to another, basically with impunity. And that's why I call her a changeling. She's changing from one social strata to another social strata, uh, going from one identity to another. With our technology today, how is that possible? So at that period of time, I, I thought that one of the things which law enforcement agencies aren't doing is they're not locking her down and identifying her. Uh, one of the issues was is that there was no great photograph on our system. So I got one from Corrective Services and put on our system. I put a lot of warnings on our, on our system in regards to her, made sure that our computer system was totally complete in regards to offences in New South Wales. But also I wrote an article for the Australian Police Journal to make other police throughout Australasia aware that she's out there. And, and by and large, it worked because I started to get calls from other police from other jurisdictions. So I think by getting the news about her out there, that is to her detriment. She doesn't like her photograph taken. She doesn't like various jurisdictions getting their head together. So by doing podcasts such as this or writing articles uh, for the Australian Police Journal or cooperating with other members of the public, in fact, I was talking to the investigator in Victoria and the way that she was caught when she was um, involved in some what they call child stealing is a member of the public actually just saw her and recognised her. And this officer uh, approached her in plain clothes and out of the blue said, uh, hey, Samantha. And she said, oh, yeah, identified herself immediately. So it was very quick thinking by members of the public. The greatest um, weapon police can use is actually the public. 
and if the public recognise her and identify her, that is what she doesn't want. She likes to be the invisible lady and that's what has to be defeated. You have to give her a form and a name and the public have to be aware. I'm sure we've not heard the last of Samantha as a party or whatever she's going to call herself in the future. Thank you so much for your time, Aaron Power. It's great to be here. That's Detective Aaron Power. You can find more of his articles in the Australian Police Journal in the archives. In a moment, we go to the New South Wales Police Force Academy. But now, a message from our sponsor. Police Bank's U30 Supercharge account is available for members aged between 18 to 29 and is one of the most accessible high-interest savings accounts on the market. This is more than a savings account as there are no ongoing fees, so you can plan for your future. Whether that's a holiday with friends, a deposit on your first home, or even a new car. Get ahead with Police Bank's U30 Supercharge account. Ten years ago, there were just 330 police in New South Wales that had Indigenous heritage. After a concerted campaign to bring them into the force, that number has grown to nearly 700. Class 357 has seven Indigenous recruits, so the First Nations cohort is set to grow further. The New South Wales Police Academy, in partnership with Charles Sturt University, has been a key part of that change creating a conducive environment for First Nations recruits to find a home in policing. Today, we meet the staff who work with those students. My name is Bianca Williams, and I am a sergeant here at the New South Wales Police Academy. I've been in the New South Wales Police now for 20 years. Um, 18 years of that, I performed general duties, uh, a little bit of a mixture of some intel and some domestic violence assistance, but mostly uh, on the truck, front row, Came to the Academy in November 2020 for promotion and took over as the First Nations Student Support Sergeant Team Leader in May of 2022. So I support students right through from what we call the UCWE, which is a Charles Sturt Certificate of Capacity, Workforce Certificate of Capacity, online in, in that online space for four to eight weeks. We, we have weekly connection sessions where we talk to the students about their culture and about their connection to, the, to their culture and their country, uh, who their mob are and what they want to achieve in the New South Wales Police and why the New South Wales Police. We support them through that learning journey. Then hopefully they come on board with us with the ADDP and into session one online. And then we continue that support until they come here in session two, where we meet face to face every week to ensure that they get through and get out there on the street. Because your role is very suited for you because you've been through this experience yourself with an Indigenous background. What was it like for you coming into that same space and and what needs did you have? Coming from Broken Hill, um, I was just a little girl out of the bush, 22 years of age, and even though I owned my own house, my mum still broke in to do my washing when I was a little behind with those domestic chores. So I'd like to think that I was, you know, independent, but I was very coddled. So coming all the way over here to Goulburn as a 22-year-old, I really needed that person in my corner, one, wrangling me and reining me in, uh, but also just checking in with me weekly, you know, daily at times, just to say, how are you going? Are you on track? Where are you at with your studies? Let's get you into this tutoring session. And, it, and it's not to suggest that I needed that, you know, not just your mum who breaks in and does your washing, but you've got a team of people, you know, really <laughs> championing your success. You understand the Charles Sturt University link to all this because it's, it's a very important partnership between the Academy and Charles Sturt University and you find yourself in the middle of that combination. I do, and, and I work very, very closely with Alfie Walker, uh, the First Nations Student Support Officer and Mentor that sits across the hall from me and... I wouldn't survive without him and I'd like to hope he wouldn't survive without me. I provide the policing context and he very, very much provides that cultural connection and context. Obviously, let him speak for himself, but he's a local custodian. So his wealth of knowledge around culture has really exploded my mind in that way, growing up quite disconnected, even though I am a Wiradjuri woman. I didn't grow up strongly connected to that culture. I guess inherently I knew things or I felt things, but I didn't know why. So as much as he's helping our students on their journey, I've really been helped along, you know, by his guidance as well. My name is Alfie, Alfie Walker, and my role is the First Nations Student Advisor for Charles State University. And you work with Bianca. What's your partnership like? What's that all about? Basically, as you know, New South Wales 
Police Force Academy has not only New South Wales Police, but Charles Sturt University has the Constable Education Program as a part of its criteria. So we have a series of Charles Sturt Uni staff here as well. And so our role together is to to support our First Nations students and also a lot of uh, First Nations cultural content here at the Police Academy. The biggest thing that we talk about is a strong sense of culture and a strong sense of culture attached to our identity as Aboriginal people. Being brought up in a strong sense of culture for myself, my identity and who I am is attached to that cultural identity. Now, for some of our students coming through, they may not have had the experience of being brought up in strong cultural ties like I have. And so we support and encourage the journey that the students are on. And so we look at, I guess, creating opportunities for them to engage with their culture, engage with different cultural elements and stories so that they have a strong sense of who they are, not only going through the academy, but leaving the academy. Because I guess when you get out there in the field as a New South Wales police officer, you're going to be coming across a lot of different people with a lot of different complexities. And so making sure that you have a strong foundation is really vital for our students going out, not only our First Nations students, but all our students going out, because you're dealing with people and their issues and their complexities at the forefront in the field. Bianca's journey to understand and live her Indigenous heritage has not been a simple one in her policing career, like so many police of diverse racial and cultural backgrounds. So um, I have a bit of Welsh, Polish Jew heritage, English, German, French. So on my mum's side is the German and there's some French and English. On my father's side is my Aboriginal heritage but also Polish, Jewish, also Welsh, also English, um, a bit of Scottish. There was somebody who went all in and stole a magistrate's coat, got put on a boat as a convict, come on over here to Australia, to Newcastle, and married himself an Aboriginal woman, and that is the history of Bianca Williams. I call myself a um, supreme pizza with anchovies. I have a little bit of everything. You are modern Australia. I am. I am quintessentially everything Australian. There is a little bit of everything. I've, I've heard it spoken about as walking in two worlds, that very much we make a decision to almost put policing first. And, and I, I take that very seriously. I, I joined the police with a desire to help and better community. And I really wanted to be that quintessential country cop forever. But obviously 18 years on the road is a really long time. So I needed to, to do something different. And I want to encourage all of these students to go back out and work on country but I also understand the pressure that involves to police your own people can be really challenging to police your own family or your own friends or or that network that you've you've grown up in and been connected with it has its own challenge that perhaps non-indigenous police might not understand how important do you think it is to the goal of national reconciliation that we have a police force that reflects the community including our first nations people absolutely imperative. We can't be what we can't see. I was blessed to have parents that encouraged me to do whatever it was that sang to my heart, but not everybody has that advocacy. Not everybody has that experience growing up. And I think for us to better relationships with any people, whatever the culture, whatever the ethnicity, we need that connection to that community. So then we can view those problems through that same lens. We do hear about recruitment drives. We'd like more Indigenous people, more people from other minorities. But the history of Australia shows us that Aboriginal people have always answered the call. Um, they've been disproportionately coming forward and joining the military and the police. The problem is we don't have popular images of Indigenous police officers that we can refer to. For instance, we had a show that I watched as a kid in the 70s called Boney, an Indigenous policeman who was in fact a white New Zealander. I mean, it is important to, to demonstrate that Aboriginal people have always been a part of law enforcement, part of military service, and it's a natural part of their full membership of this country. Yeah, for sure. You know, I think, I think what's important is um, it comes back to our values as First Nations people. We have this strong warrior within us. And that strong warrior wants to defend and represent and support and add value, not only our families, but also our community. We, we come from a foundation of having a strong sense of community. And where there's an opportunity to contribute and serve and help for the advancement and 
strengthening of our community, we as people do that. It's always been a part of who we are. You know, uh, our community makes up a part of our identity. Therefore, it's naturally something that where we go from a cultural context, we want to we want to serve our community. We want to add value to our community. We want to stand for our community. And so that's that's the story of a lot of our Aboriginal policing students coming through. You know, it's already hard enough for them at times to put their hand up and say, you know, I want to be a police officer because of the history of our country and the unfortunate side of our history uh, and the role that police has played with our community. There's, there's a lot of tension there. And so when our First Nations students put their hands up and say, you know what, I actually want to study to be a police officer. Yes, they get a lot of support um, from a lot of their family and friends, but a lot of the time as well, they don't get that support. You know, they don't get that support from a broader context. You know, it's really complex. And that's why I admire our First Nations students when they, you know, come here to the academy or when they start session one and, and start their journey of policing. I speak highly of them and support them. And I want to add value around their journey because it's already a complexity for them. It's already an issue and they've already got a series of things that they're coming up against. So for me, I think, you know, the advertisement of a lot of things of what's happening on our social media for New South Wales Police, seeing the great positive images of our students, you know, putting their handprints on the wall or being involved in the trackers opening and these sorts of things. These are the positive images, you know, that we're seeing of our, of our First Nation students saying, you know what, this is my identity. This is who I am. But this is also how I want to serve going back to that Peel's principles, that without the trust of our community, we can't even hope to police it. So I guess to garner that trust or to gather that trust, we need that reflection within our ranks, within our service, we need the reflection of the community we're policing. And I think that the trust comes with that. It's hand in hand. The country and culture panel is something we introduced fairly recently, the last couple of classes. And we go through an idea of, you know, some questions like, what does home look like for you? You know, we interview a number of people. One of those people is our student liaison officer here, and she's moved around a fair bit and shares her experience of wherever she goes, having to create a sense of home because she feels that that's important for her ongoing development and support that she provides to our students. And so asking students the questions like, what does home look like to you? Because at the end of the day, when you're dealing with a lot of the complexities that our, our probationary constables are dealing with out in the field, when they come home, we talk to them about process of transitioning from their work identity and the things that they deal with to their home life. Because I can articulate why that's important to me as an Aboriginal person and having my identity attached to my sense of home. But for, for our students, what does home look like for you? And one person said, oh, look, for me, home is spending time with my son. Uh, and so at the end of the day of their shift where they're dealing with a lot of disadvantage and vulnerabilities, coming home and spending time with their son is about building up that sense of home for them. And it was a really lovely response. You know, we've had a lot of questions um, and and different answers come out to that question of what is your idea of home? There is, and I had a really interesting conversation with my husband on Friday night. We are just sitting around having a nice glass of wine and a, and a chat when the kids had gone to bed. And I said to him, the dead and the dying don't cause issue for me. It's telling a person that their child won't be coming home. So the hardest days for me, particularly as a mother were, and that's not to say that the father doesn't suffer the loss. It's simply just as a mother knocking on a door and telling a mother that their child isn't coming home. And we were talking about how well I thought I hid my sort of vicarious trauma from my own family. And, and it was a bit of a slap in the face, wake up call. And he said, you never hid it because you were quiet. You would sit and stare at the table and the kids would be talking to you and there was no engagement. You were just lost in that sadness. I hadn't realised that, you know, for 18 years, my family felt that with me. So that's, I guess, where that passion comes from is that I don't want partners and children to feel unsupported. We're, we're the ones turning up to the jobs. We're the ones walking through that door but I still took that home. So it was a really sort of big wake up call, even 20 years in the cops, I'm still learning, you know, really how to support that. And one little thing that my husband used to do was leave the light on for me. So whatever time I came home, whatever the hour was, I came home to warmth. I came home to a light on, to a welcoming home. And there was always food in the, in the oven or the microwave. 
So I didn't come home to the darkness or my dark thoughts. I came home to something that was welcoming. And I just, even if I was lost in my thoughts, I was safe. And I think that's really important. And that's, that's something that we talk to our students about creating those routines. If it's taking your boots off at the door, if it's getting completely changed and showering in the workplace to wash away your day, whatever it is that helps you take that off, take off that uniform and take off that trauma and leave it. That's what we're aiming to, to sort of provide for our students in terms of robustness. Well, like I said, I've had, I've had bad days right towards the end of my career. I had um, sort of six or seven really traumatic deaths in a really short period. And I just, I felt really heavy and I don't want other people to feel that. And if I can just give them some tools so they can, I said that what had happened was I became so good at compartmentalizing trauma that by the time I got to the academy, I felt like the filing cabinet flew open and all of the files that, had, that I'd packed away were chasing me all at once. So I've had that real journey of, of wellness myself. So if I can give the students that capacity to not become unwell, preventative mental health, good mental health. A number of communities in our country experience anti-police sentiment, Indigenous communities one. What would you say to people in any of those communities, including Indigenous communities, about joining the police force, about where it's at, about what you can expect and the kind of support you can expect when you get to the academy? Yeah, thank you for that question. I hope to think that the policing is changing. We're trying our best here, especially at the academy, to teach our students to look at our communities through a respective lens. And so uh, using terms like respect, using terms like understanding vulnerabilities, understanding complexities, you know, taking into the consideration that we have maybe generational trauma that exists within our Indigenous communities, especially here in New South Wales. And so my message is uh, very similar to that of what I heard a student say one time. And he said, you know, if, if I don't stand up for my community, no one else will. If you want to serve, if you want to be able to see change, engage in that change yourself. And what I'm really impressed with is that they've chosen to go to those most remote communities like Broken Hill, like Moree, you know, we're sending the best of our First Nations student police officers out to those communities that most need that representation. And they're choosing to go. They're putting their hand up to really jump in and help. So I guess those lessons about culture and country from Alfie are really hitting home. And that's so important. Because a lot of our students um, coming through, a lot of them have had wonderful strength in academics, but some haven't had the opportunity. And so we get them extra tutor support through our First Nations tutor program. Uh, a lot of our team here at Student Support Services are here for well-being and supporting the well-being of the students through the journey. A lot of our teachers really love to um, hear the numbers of, of our First Nations students coming through because they understand that, you know, representation within our organisation is important because it means that we're, we're bridging that gap and, and having students come out with understanding of what our communities are going through and experiencing. And that can be shared while they're here. You know, the peer-to-peer -peer support is um, really, really wonderful too, sharing stories, sharing who they are. You know, we have a, a beautiful saying in our Wiradjuri language, Winanga Gigilada Nungilada, and that means care for each other and share with each other. And so we share that with the students, we share that with the staff, and it's this community of caring for each other and sharing with each other um, while they're here on their policing journey. So my encouragement is come, come and meet us and have a look at it as a career because it's a really great career to have our mob and our community supporting our mob and our community. Your title includes First Nations, but you're available to all the students because every young person and some older people as well have adjustment issues. <clears throat> you're joining the police family from a disparate background. So it's not just First Nations people you're dealing with. Absolutely. And, and we've sort of expanded the supports that we offer. We obviously, as a university and an education provider, have an LGBTQI plus space. We have allies. My door is open to anybody. I have a daughter who sits on the spectrum. So I have a really good, I guess, understanding of how to navigate changes in, in family situations and how that might flow on some of our students in terms of balancing the needs of what is at home, balancing their academic needs here. So quite regularly, I'll have students pop up just for a debrief to talk through their week, really simple things like reading a story onto a recording. So the little person has a video of them reading to them of a night. So, 
you know, providing ideas about routine and consistency so the people that are at home supporting our students feel supported as well. So that's something I'm sort of bringing into the space is that you don't have to be First Nations to knock on my door. I want to see you on your good days. I want to see you on your bad days. I'm really passionate about well-being long-term and, and to have a sense of safety within yourself or, or your environment that helps you cope with what we see and what we do. I think you are the metaphorical porch light at home for these students when they're away from home. And I think you're a terrific asset just from what you've told me. I thought I was going to ride that truck until I died. You know, being part of GDs and being part of the camaraderie and, you know, that that way that we come together and support each other. And again, it's probably idealistic, but I, I had the most wonderful colleagues in general duties that supported me through sort of miscarriages and, and pregnancy losses and some really traumatic events. And they became my family 12 hours away from my family. And I don't know that I would have survived this thing called life without that, that support from those beautiful people in blue. But if I can just give that, and I often giggle that I want to create minions, you know, an army of minions, 200 students a pop and send them out there with just, just the smallest ideas of how to care for each other, how to look after each other, because the bad days will come. They will come. And it's what we do for each other in our worst times. A lot of the images and the narrative in the media is a council of despair about Indigenous people. What I'm hearing here, you and Bianca, on a very practical, very fundamental level, are trying to make great change, bring great change to the people and ultimately their communities. You know, we're here to support people who want to make that change. Yes, we are influencing change, but we are supporting individuals who are going out into the community and really doing the hard work around the change. And so our job of empowerment, that's what it's about. That was Alfie Walker, First Nations Student Advisor for Charles Sturt University at the Police Academy. This segment was sponsored by Charles Sturt University, providing education for police and law enforcement. Next week on Inside the New South Wales Police Force, bringing people home with the Missing Persons Registry. Basically, like every murder, unsolved murder, the case is never closed. We do not close that case until such time as those matters are taken to the coroner and making the physical grade before attestation for class 357 at the Police Academy. We don't advise that they play any contact sports or do anything that's high risk um, as far as injury is concerned, even for the first 12 months of their probationary period, just to make sure you're able to be operational. To find out more about any of our products discussed on today's episode, speak to us on 131 728 or visit policebank.com.au because banking with Police Bank means banking where you belong. Inside the New South Wales Police Force podcast is produced by Piccolo Podcasts and Media Productions. Host Adam Shan, producers Andrew Mensel and Courtney Besgrove. For New South Wales Police, Amy Hosking, Christian Schweitzer, Sergeant Emma Key, Sergeant Megan Knight and Senior Constable Ash Bold. Original music by Anthony Bray and the New South Wales Police Force Band. 